Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 17, verse 14, and we'll pick up where we left off last week. And uh, as you're turning to Matthew 17, I'm going to uh, say a quick prayer for us this morning. Jesus, as we um, sing in that last song, you are sovereign over us. Uh, even in our difficulty and in our pain. And so we um, recognize that some people are coming into this place and they're uh, in that valley of the shadow of death, so to speak, that they are uh, in times of difficulty and yet you are um, with them. And then we recognize that there's uh, another group of people who are coming in here just on top of the world, um, just um, seeing you in everything and um, full of faith and hope and love and it's really proper that that we come together and rejoice you and rejoice in you in that spirit and so uh, no matter where we're at this morning god we pray that you would meet us in this place and as we open your scriptures we pray uh, that that you would inspire faith and, and ever more so as our culture seems increasingly skeptical um, would your gathered community be a place of of genuine meaningful uh, faith would you inspire that in us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, we pick up in Matthew 17, verse 14. It says this. It says, When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebu rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch. 
Open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. How awesome is that? I wish I could pay my taxes that way. Um, Okay, so a a bit of a, a random sampling from Jesus' ministry this morning. We start with a short story of Jesus casting out a demon, which, which feels like an almost a daily event in Jesus' ministry. It's happening over and over again. Someone, in this case, someone who is a demon-possessed is brought to the disciples. The disciples are unable to cast it out, and Jesus steps in and does so. Then, in our sort of next mini-story, uh, Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection which again is something that happens on a regular basis through the book of Matthew. He reminds us that the core of what he's come to do, uh, that the center of his earthly life will actually be his death and his resurrection from the dead. The entire story of the Gospels, in my opinion, is a story about the kingdom of heaven. And even more specifically, it's about how God became king in and through Jesus. That's sort of the the uniting banner over the Gospels. It's the story of king and kingdom. That is, King Jesus and the inbreaking kingdom of heaven that will arrive in full one day. And so in one sense... That is uh, the the story that the Jewish people had been anticipating uh, for uh, millennia. But the nature of the king and the nature of the kingdom and the means by which it would be accomplished are are all gloriously counterintuitive. Uh, Those are not what the Jewish people anticipated. And, and so, uh, through uh, death and resurrection, the inbreaking kingdom finds its full uh, expression. Uh, the inbreaking kingdom uh, comes to bear on this reality, and Jesus is, en- is enthroned as the ultimate king, as the one uh, who made the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of all creation, the one who has conquered sin and death, the one who has triumphed over the dominion of darkness, and the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Okay, so uh, then uh, we go from a prediction of death and resurrection, which is kind of the the centerpiece of Jesus' life, the centerpiece of uh, the gospel, and, and we go straight from that into this miraculous event involving Peter and taxes and fish. And as always, there seems to be multiple layers to the text at hand. The first layer of the text this morning and the most valuable layer is about God. It speaks to who God is. Who is Jesus? Well, in the course of these three short stories, we see that Jesus has authority over the demonic, that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who will be slain for the sins of the world, who came to die on a cross for our, on our behalf and be raised to life Again, and Jesus was constantly doing the miraculous, which in this case involves Peter paying taxes from the mouth of a fish. 
But all of this speaks to who God is and what he's like. That, that's the central heartbeat of the text. But the second layer of the text is about discipleship or about what it means, what it looks like to follow after Jesus. Okay, so if you remember all the way back to last Sunday, for those of you who were here, we unpacked the transfiguration, which uh, in, in the central heartbeat, again, behind the text, is just the glory and beauty of Jesus. We get to see the glory of Jesus unveiled, and that's, that's our, our primary takeaway from the text. But all of the, the secondary, the subtext, so to speak, was speaking into discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus through the valleys and mountaintop experiences that characterize our day-to-day life? And, and I'd like to take the same approach with the text that's in front of us today. If you only walk out of this room remembering one thing, I hope it's the glory of Jesus. I hope it's Jesus' power and, and supremacy over the forces of, of evil in the world. I hope that it's Jesus as, as the crucified King, as the resurrected Lord, Jesus as God, as instigator of the miraculous. That's, that's just who he is. And again, that's the center of the text. So keep that in mind as we unpack this this morning. It's all about the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And if you were only capable of keeping one thing in mind, then feel free to tune me out for the next 20 minutes. Okay? Just walk out of here contemplating the beauty and power and mystery and glory of Jesus. If you're a one-thought kind of person, you can stop right here. But... If you think you might be capable of contemplating two things this morning, then I don't want you to tune me out yet because I think that there's something in in the subtext, in the discipleship layer, that will be uh, worth unpacking this morning. So, remember, center of the text, glory and beauty of Jesus, dominion over darkness, crucified, risen, uh, miraculous provider, worker of miracles, king over creation. But when you move beyond that into the subtext or the next layer, what we see is that there's this uh, constant tension at play in the narrative, in the life of the disciples. And that constant tension that I want to highlight this morning is the tension between faith and fear. And you can see this tension playing itself out in all three of the sort of mini-stories that we're unpacking this morning. So, uh, first... We have a man who brings his demon-possessed son to the disciples. And there's nothing in the text that says explicitly that the disciples were uh, fearful necessarily or afraid, uh, but we are told that they lacked faith. Perhaps they really were afraid. Perhaps they were just uh, approaching it as this sort of, you know, kind of mundane, everyday thing. Yeah, okay, you're here we'll pray for you, 
but I don't think anything's really going to happen. In this instance, I don't really think that the kingdom of light is greater than the dominion of darkness. I, I think Satan might win this round. So yeah, we'll pray, sure, whatever, let's pray. And to be fair, many of us do feel some sense of fear when we're faced with any sort of uh, overt spiritual warfare, like what we have in the text. Uh, because when we come face to face with the, the tangible presence of darkness, when we sense its power and presence, I think the natural human in, impulse is sort of to recoil in, in, in discomfort and in fear uh, of what we are encountering. I think for, uh, for many of us, there's this tendency to just kind of want to throw our hands up in, in defeat. For some of us, uh, there is the temptation toward real fear. We kind of freak out or, or want to make too much of the situation. But in any case, uh, there is a real temptation to let fear or doubt get the better of us. And I don't know the exact mindset of the disciples in this moment. The text isn't explicit. But what's clear is that there's a lack of faith and the presence of the opposite of faith. Call it fear, call it whatever you want. And in response, Jesus says this. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And I think that last line says it all. Nothing will be impossible for you. There is nothing that God will call you to. There is no cause of the kingdom that cannot be accomplished by faith. Faith is, is the key that, that opens that door, so to speak. It, it, it's, it's the key to all of this other stuff that Jesus has for us. It, it opens up a whole new way of life that's going to result, among other things, in victory over sin, Satan, and death. How are you going to conquer the forces of darkness in your own life or, or, or in the world at large? Well, it's not going to be by worldly means. It's going to happen through the power of Jesus unleashed through the avenue of faith. If the reality of Jesus and the Spirit is, as the scriptures describe, as living water, there's solution that our world is thirsting for then faith becomes the channel through which that living water flows. 
So, so the solution is clearly Jesus. It's clearly the, the living water. But our lack of faith can kind of plug up those channels, so to speak. Or, in the alternative, the presence of faith can throw the door wide open. And so each one of us is then forced to choose between faith and fear. Fear cannot defeat our enemy. And fear looks on life, all of life, including the cross, with a sense of despair. Look at the very next verse. It says this. It says, When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with what? Grief. They were filled with grief. Isn't that ironic? that these are the very things that we celebrate in our weekly gathering, week in and week out. We come together to celebrate that Jesus was sacrificed for the sins of the world at the hands of sinful men and that he didn't stay dead. That, that's the center of our joy, of our celebration, of our worship, of our awe, of our reverence. And yet, the disciples are approaching these exact same events from a different perspective. For the disciples of Jesus in this room today, to hear these things is to stir in our hearts something beautiful, something worth celebrating, something worth living for, something worth dying for. And yet, these exact, this exact same announcement seen through the lens of fear it, it is just a source of grief and confusion. But, but it's a matter of perspective. Seen through the lens of fear, we would look at the cross and say, this is a failure, which is exactly what the first disciples believed. This is where God lost and Satan won. This is surely the place of shame and defeat. And so when the original disciples heard this news, sorry, previous slide. When the original disciples heard this news, they're thinking in their minds, well, that means by necessity that either Jesus is not the Messiah or he is the Messiah and the Messiah is going to fail. This, this is a failure seen through the lens of fear. Or from the other side of the cross, on the other side of history, seen through our modern lens of fearful skepticism, we, we ask a different set of, of questions. Say, hey, wait, what if this didn't happen at all? What if the disciples made it all up? How can I possibly know and we always encourage the asking of questions. But what I'd like to point out is that behind the ancient uh, reaction and many of the modern reactions, there is lurking this sense of fear. 
They're approaching cross and resurrection from a place of fear and not faith. And all of us in this room, you can sense almost intuitively the anxiety that flows from the fear-filled life. If you see everything through the lens of fear, you will be an anxious person. You will be. And so as we approach the tension of spiritual warfare, which we were born into and not by choice, we get to choose whether we will address it from a place of fear or a place of faith. As we approach the cross, it forces us to choose between a perspective of fear that leads to cynicism and grief and confusion and despair, or a perspective of faith which leads to joy and gratitude and communion with the living Christ. The disciples heard about the cross and resurrection and were filled with you fill in the blank. Grief, fear, despair, or a glorious faith that says, God, I trust you. You know what you're doing. And these were the most remarkable events in world history. And you might say, well, that's all well and good, Matt. The cross and spiritual warfare are very, quote, spiritual topics. Of course, we should approach them with faith. But lest you forget that our third and final story is about the most secular of all things, taxes. Nothing is more pedestrian Nothing is more mundane. Nothing is more unspiritual than taxes. And I can exercise faith as I contemplate the beauty of the cross. And I can exercise faith in praying against our enemy who, who seeks to thwart the goodness of God's creation. But what happens when I'm confronted with all of this secular, everyday stuff? Uh, should I really approach those in the same way? I mean, surely I can trust God to do, quote, spiritual stuff in, in response to my faith. But what about the practical? What about taxes? Does God really care about my taxes? And this morning's story would scream, yes, of course, God's in all of it. He cares deeply about all of it. And, and therefore, uh, all of it is life. God's in all of it. And therefore, all of it becomes an opportunity to exercise faith. And if that's true, that God cares deeply about something as mundane as your taxes, 
then what it does is that it challenges the false dichotomy that we've made in our minds between sacred and secular, between spiritual and unspiritual, between the places that we assume God cares about and that we assume he will move and and the places that we assume he will not. But if all of it is life and God's in all of it, then all of it becomes an opportunity to exercise faith over fear. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, Peter replied. And as Peter enters the house, Jesus basically explains, hey, we should be as exempt from this tax. In all reality, we shouldn't have to pay. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. And as the story continues, that is exactly what happens. And I want us to see the faith in this as well. Because Peter had enough faith uh, to listen and obey and go down to the lake. But I still would have loved to see the look on his face when this happened. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine being Peter and standing on the edge of the lake and, and snagging your first fish? And, and, and reeling it in and wrestling with it and the whole time thinking, what if? Like, wh- what if Jesus was telling the truth? What if this is actually going to happen? And, and I just imagine Peter kind of like excitedly trying to reel it in and, and his heartbeat starts racing faster and he finally gets the fish and, and pries open his mouth and oh my goodness. You know, he has like his, his freak out moment on the beach. Like, no, what, like, what type of world am I living in? This is surreal. Like, what is happening to me right now? It, this is splendidly miraculous. But what's it all about? It's about provision in the most practical sense. These men have left everything they knew to follow Jesus. Great jobs, homes, family structures, even lucrative careers. And now they have nothing and they own nothing. They they are radically trusting in God to provide their daily bread, so to speak, day by day, living in faith and trusting in his provision. It takes incredible faith to live the life that these men are living. And yet, God continues to show up in miraculous ways to meet them in that place and provide for them, even when it doesn't make sense. And all of a sudden, in light of a simple moment like that one, uh, our, our finances and our taxes and our saving and our spending all become opportunities to exercise faith in partnership with God. And this is a challenging word for me because of all of the areas of discipleship, 
Uh, this is the one where I am naturally the least likely to trust God when it comes to my finances. Essentially, I say, God, I, I trust the work that you did on the cross. I trust in your resurrection from the dead. I trust you with my marriage. I, I trust you with my family, with my children, with my career, even with my eternity. I trust you. And God says, well, hey, what about your finances? And I say, whoa, 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 God, hey, let's not get carried away. These are my finances. This isn't a spiritual issue. This isn't, I mean, I, I trust you at a distance, right? Like, yeah, in theory, I, I, I trust you with that, but, but I got it. Like, let, let, me, let me handle it. It's just one of those issues that, for me personally, God is constantly challenging me to grow, constantly speaking into that area of my life. And, and I was sitting back and thinking about it in light of the stories that we read this morning and thinking, man, was there ever a time that I really did this well, that I like actually kind of stepped out and, and radically trust God uh, in my finances, in, in this area of weakness. And as I was thinking about it, I remembered a time, okay? Just one. And there might be more, um, but I will share this one. And it's not the norm for me. It, it's more the exception shared out of an area of my life uh, that, uh, of, of weakness where God's asking me to grow. But I remember uh, when I first graduated from law school uh, back in 2013, and uh, I was living off student loans, and my student loans by the time I graduated were like down to, to nothing. And so, and I had the whole summer ahead of me where I was going to be studying for the bar. I had to study for the bar full time for, for that summer. So I couldn't have a job or anything like that. And I had a free place to live for the summer but basically I knew that I was just going to watch my bank account slowly dwindle down. Uh, and pretty quickly it dwindled down until I only had $130 left in my bank account, 133 to be exact. And I still had like three months of the summer to get through. And I was like, this is, this is not gonna happen. This is impossible. And, and as I'm worrying about that, I had a friend approach me and he said, hey, Matt, I'm, I'm going on this mission trip. I'm wondering if you'd pray about supporting me. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Uh, but what I said was, yeah, let me pray about it. I don't know why I said that. But in one of my better moments, I, I actually prayed about it and, and I listened. And as I was kind of praying and listening, I felt God really clearly in the moment say, give him a hundred. And I'm thinking, what? God, are you serious? Like, are you talking to the right person? Do you, you've seen my bank account, right? Like, you know, are you serious? And, and, and there it was. It wouldn't go away just sitting in my lap. Hey, give him a hundred. And so in one of my better, better moments, I said, oh, okay. And, and, and I give him a hundred dollars and then kind of held my breath. Okay, God, like your, your move here, I've got no car, no house, no job, and now no money. Okay, I've got, I've got $30 left in my bank account, 33. 
And, and so I spent the next day or so kind of trying to calculate, I wonder like how many cup of noodles I can buy with $33. I'm like, oh, maybe if they go on sale, like I'm like, uh. And in the midst of, of my scheming, the strangest thing happened. I started getting checks in the mail and not from friends, but from all of the institutions that I usually pay. And, and I had a former landlord uh, re repay the whole uh, deposit that I had forgotten I had even given them a year earlier, which was a miracle on several levels, seeing the state of the house. And, and, and then I had Comcast and then I had Comcast say, hey, we just realized we've been overcharging you for the internet for like two years. So, so like here's this check, like I'm opening it up thinking, oh, another bill. And Wait, what? And, and, and Comcast paid me. And then the IRS was like, oh, hey, we thought you weren't getting a tax return. You actually are. Here it is. Like all within days of this happening, I had over $1,000 in my bank account. And I made it through the rest of the summer, through the bar exam, and into employment. And it was glorious. And to me, personally, this was as miraculous as if I had found it in a fish. It was impossible. Here, every letter that I opened thinking, oh, this is it. This, this is where I'm sunk. And yet, right in the midst of it, God, God was doing something in response to a moment of faith in an area where I'm usually weak. And so as we wrap up this morning, I, I want us to think about the role that faith and fear play in your life? What does it look like to step into this new way of life? That, that, that's what the lesson was for me. That, that as I was opening these letters, the, the implication that hit home was that there's this whole new way of living that's available to us right in the middle of a world that appears to be secular and materialistic. There's this whole new way of life that's made available to us by faith, that trusts radically in God's provision, that, that trusts radically in, in the cross and resurrection, that trusts radically in God's power over the dominion of darkness. And you start practicing this type of faith in every area of your life, not just some, but in all areas, and all of life will be different. It just will. And as you struggle with the choice between faith and fear, may you remember that all human beings are governed by something. And I'm going to argue that most human beings, most of the time, do most of what we do out of fear. We do what we do out of fear of what might happen if we don't. 
That single concept can explain most of our conduct from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. And the invitation of Jesus is to step into a a whole new way of living that operates in faith and in love and, and that approaches all of the same events, the exact same events, but it approaches them from from a whole new angle. Whether it be confrontation with evil or the cross and resurrection or something as seemingly mundane and secular as paying taxes, all of them can be approached from a place of faith or a place of fear. I have a friend who's really good at bringing people to Jesus. And, and this is the way he does it. This is his entire apologetic. It, it is the human tension between faith and fear. And, and, and as he gets to know people and goes deeper in conversation, he gets to that point where he says, hey, you can live in fear. You can live in fear of evil, in fear of failure, in fear of death, in fear of public speaking, in fear of poverty, in fear of what others will think of you, or you can live by faith. And and, and what is this faith? Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's confidence in the cross and resurrection. It's confidence about the resurrection that is yet to come. It's confidence in God's victory over evil and his presence at work in the world. It's confidence about his faithful provision as we submit everything in our lives to him. It's confidence in God's love and affection for you just as you are right now in this moment. And and as you practice that, that faith, you will quickly recognize that there is no better way to live. And as we walk in this faith, we throw the door wide open for the kingdom of heaven to come crashing into this world as fear is cast out in the presence of perfect love. And we gain a whole new perspective on every area of life, not just eternity, not just some, but in every area of life. We gain freedom from fear through the avenue of faith. And so as we close this morning, I want to end with a really simple question. And we're just going to pose this question and then just sit for a few minutes and see what happens. And the question is this. God, where are you asking me to trust you more? Or or the related question. God, what are you asking me to do by faith? could be trusting in his provision as you walk in faithful generosity. It it could be trusting in his power over darkness in a world that is 
full of it. It could be trusting in the finished work of the cross and resurrection. Trusting that you're actually forgiven. Trusting that you're actually the beloved. Trusting that you're actually fully and finally reconciled to God. It takes faith to believe that. You're not on spiritual probation. You're not walking on eggshells with God. That, that's not who he is. That, that demonstrates that we have more faith to place in the cross and, and, and the resurrection. That we would approach those events in, in, and celebrate instead of grieve. Perhaps he's asking you to place more faith in his provision or the new creation work that started in Jesus' resurrection and continues in you. I, I don't know what it is for you. Perhaps he wants you to grow in a confident faith of your own resurrection that is to come and the way that that can shape every aspect of our lives in the here and now. Perhaps he's calling you to go and do something by faith and you know what it is and you just don't want to do it. And I don't know what it is for you, but I'm confident that there's some place, that there's something that God's asking you to do that requires faith to triumph over fear. He's inviting you to place greater faith in him, to see the world, past, present, future, spiritual warfare, the cross and resurrection, taxes and finances, to see all of it from the lens of faith and not fear. Until the day that you see him face to face through resurrected eyes and your faith is richly rewarded. Let's pray. Jesus, the scriptures say that uh, though we do not see you, we love you. And as we come to you this morning, many of us with questions, we recognize that uh, questions and, and even doubt uh, are, are not the opposite of faith. But the opposite of, of, of faith is, is sight that there's all this stuff that we can't see, and yet you come to us as, as the faithful God, as the loving God, as the God who's adopted us in, and you say, let me show you, let me whisper to you about all this stuff that you can't see. I, I, want, you to, I want you to walk, not by sight, but by faith, and I'm, I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you, but I'm going to whisper to you, and I'm going to teach you how, how to walk in this whole new way of living that, that unleashes the kingdom of God, that crushes anxiety and fear, and replaces with it a, a confident faith and a genuine joy as we take hold of the things which you so desperately want us to take hold of. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to that end?
Would you grow our faith this morning? And would you speak to us in the next two, three minutes or so as we just take a moment to sit and reflect and think and pray? Would you have your way here and would you speak to us about where you're asking us to grow in faith? It could be just the simplest initial placing of faith in the cross. Or maybe we did that years ago and you're saying, hey, what about this? What about this thing? What about what's next? I have more for you if only you're willing to walk by faith. And so we look to you now, Jesus, as the author and perfecter of our faith, and we say, come and in your power, perfect our faith in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.